All right, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, automotive enthusiasts from all around this great planet that uh, we drive around on called Earth, you have uh, you've done it again. You've pushed play on yet another... Another rambustious episode of V8 Radio, Kevin. <laughs> rambustious? That's right, man. That means uh, boisterous or unruly, and we're just, we're blowing it out today. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm your host, Kevin Oste, joined, as always, by our esteemed co-host, Mr. Mike Hubal-Clark, and we have a very special guest on the line today, Mr. Miles Kovacs. Miles, welcome to V8 Radio. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I hope you're ready for uh, a rambustious time. <laughs> I am, actually. I am. Right good, on. Good. Uh, okay, so to those who have listened to the show before, you know we... Uh, we start each episode with kind of a silly automotive trivia question in which uh, we ask each other in the beginning the question, but we hold the answer till the very end of the show to kind of keep people hanging. You know, we got to give them something good to listen to, even though uh, they're certainly going to get something out of miles for, for a change instead of just Mike and I. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Mike, um, have you... Uh, have you prepared a trivia question for us? I, I certainly have prepared a trivia question. And uh, before I unleash it, I just need to apologize. It's not my best effort. I was, having, I was struggling a bit today. Miles, you deserve better. Our listeners deserve better. Everybody deserves better than what they're about to get here. But here we go. All right. All right. So picture in your mind. You're in your high-speed luxury cruiser. You find yourself a nice, wide, open stretch of road, and you just you just put it all the way down and you go wide open your car is going over 150 miles an hour what is the speed rating on your tires need to be in order to do this safely Ooh, that's a good one well being a uh, a gracious host i'm gonna let our guest mr miles kovacs take the first shot at that one. what do you think buddy oh uh, you want me to answer now yeah. yes please they have to have a z rating zr rating a z rating Z rating. Mm-hmm. All right. He fired that one off kind of quick. He there, did. Right? He did. <laughs> you think I'm this guy knows something knows about what wheels and tires? About. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right on. Okay. Well, uh, this is another one of those situations where I'm going to side with our guest and say yes, it is a Z rating. Right on. Oh Kevin wait, wait, says wait, 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 Hold on, hold on. One fifty is what okay. you said, right? 150 miles an hour? Yes. 150. Yeah, it is a Z. That's my guess. Okay. Right before that is V, right? I don't know. And then, is it? And then Beats H. me. Yeah, I, I'm going to say it's Z also. All right. So there you Duly go. noted, gentlemen. All right. Uh, Miles, have you thought anything about a uh, possible trivia question to play Stump the Chumps over here? <laughs> I have a good one. It's, oh, it's basically no. true or false. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Were windshield wipers on your vehicle once illegal and considered a driver's distraction? True or false? Kevin, I have a feeling because you're a gracious host, you're going to let me answer that first. I certainly am. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Were windshield wipers once considered a driver's hazard and they were illegal? illegal. True or false? I am... You know, I want to say true, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say false on that. Okay, I'm gonna go Mike false. Mike says false. Mike yeah, says false. Yeah. Well, 
I, I would say, say to, uh, to me, that's kind of a multi-parter because uh, I would say, yes, they were considered a distraction, but were they considered illegal is the double-edged sword there. But because Mike said false, I'm going to say true, that it was considered distracting and illegal. Okay. So we will find out the answer to that one at the end of the show. That's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's good and trivial. It's right up our alley. <laughs> uh, and, and I prepared one as well. Um, sometimes we try to align our, our questions with our guests, like uh, what Mike did with his tire rating. Um, so what was the earliest known mention of the term dub in film? Ooh. Oh, man. <laughs> Miles, since I'm a gracious co-host, I'm going to let you answer that one first. I mean, I, don't, I have no idea. Um, I, I would think it would probably be in, in, in film? In film. And, and I will go out on a limb here and say that uh, I'm not sure the definition of dub is consistent with everybody. No, yeah. And no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a duplicate, like a dub. So, you know, if it's film as in motion picture or film as in just film, film, like, you know, still camera film, because those film are two different in, things. Correct. Film is in motion picture. So I would probably say early 1900s. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Early 1900s. I don't know. I mean, that sounds old. Is that not old? It, it does sound old, but it's a, it's a great answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I'm gonna write laughs> <it down. laughs> early 1900s okay all right all right i'll take a stab at this one um so you mr q yeah i will say the earliest known mention of the word dub in film was and i, I don't know what year it came out but i'll say the first uh, fast and the furious film mm-hmm. uh, whatever year that was what is that um that's for you to answer. 2000? Um, gosh darn it. I don't know the year. You're going to... Um, year 2000. Y2K. Two, Y2K. Y2K. Says, possibly in a Fast and Furious franchise. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Well, uh, our, our listeners will all be uh, holding their breath to the end of the show to get the answer to these riveting questions and more. <laughs> and more. <laughs> right on. So at this point, I'd like to, to bring out our guest, Mr. Miles Kovacs. And, and Miles is a guy who um, is one of the founders of, of the, uh, the, basically the dub universe and is a guy who's been involved not only with cars, but also in entertainment and a whole lifestyle and has really done some amazing things. Uh, from a grassroots level on up. So, Miles, uh, I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and joining us today. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Well, you think it's an opportunity now, but really it's uh, it'll be a big letdown. <laughs> 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 so so you're a busy guy. And um, for those who, who listen to our show, which is primarily, you know, American cars, muscle cars kind of stuff, um, you're a little bit on the outside of, uh, of the hobby that we stand in. Um, but tell us a little bit about how the, the whole dub magazine and the dub events and all that stuff got started, because the story is really incredible. You know, um, I'm a street kid from East LA, and I've always been a fan of low riding. So I, I used to, you know, I learned how to read by reading Low Rider magazine, not by being in school. 
Um, cause school was just really tough for me. It made me feel stupid. Um, I was diagnosed with an eye disease called keratoconus at age 11. So I was almost legally blind in my left eye and, and I had the disease in both eyes. So it's hard for me to study, to, to read. And, you know, I was just, I was a typical kid too. I, I didn't want to be in school. Um, right. so it's, I struggled, but the lowrider culture was something that I really wanted to be involved with and just understand and really learn about. So I kind of forced myself to read Lowrider magazine besides just look at the pictures, but it was mm -hmm. just more like what size rim was on there, what brand, you know, some of the specs and things like that. So just kind of understanding it wasn't like reading every single sentence, but I got a good idea of how to read from that. Um, and then just kind of worked it on. And then, so I've always had this utmost respect for Lowrider magazine and the founders and, um, as I progressed in my life, you know, I started, I got kicked out of high school, worked at a um, local rim store when I got kicked out as a delivery driver. It was called Modern Auto. And they basically gave me my shot. I was 16 and uh, I would go over there and sweep the floor and drive and drop off wheels and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just kind of got that whole start and then moved into sales, moved into sales management, launched their mail order, um, took their mail order from zero a month to over 150,000 a month and just, I mean, um, wow. yeah, no, I mean, zero, zero a month to yeah, 150,000 a month and yeah. just, you know, just killing it and, um, just learning about business, you know, as it came and, um, just being eager. I mean, I wish I, I, I still push myself every day to stay curious, you know, because that's what I was when I was young. I was just curious and I wanted to learn everything and about everything. So I still kind of push myself. I think sometimes I've become more complacent because I feel like I already know. So it's like I'm less searching, but I, I really push myself to search and really, you know, interact with people and, um, you know, try to push myself out of my comfort zone every day. That's so uh, go it's really impressive, especially, um, to, to start literally at the ground floor and, and sweep in the floor and be curious enough, not only to be curious about the business, but also to learn it and then to master it and be able to deliver, uh, with this, with this maybe preconceived, you know, hindrance that you weren't, you know, a good student or something. And you basically just yeah. shattered all that and went to town. Yeah. I mean, I was a terrible student. I mean, I was failing all my classes. I would, you know, I was a disruption. I would get upset. I threw chairs at teachers and I was, you know, <laughs> oh, wow. just, yeah, I was, I was definitely, I, when I got kicked out of school, the folder was probably like five inches thick of all the referrals I've gotten from being in school. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was a, a eye opener too, because I never thought I was bad, you know? Yeah. And then when they started, I had to go to like this hearing and they just started reading all of my referrals one by one. And I was thinking, damn, did I do that? Yeah, I did wow. that too. You know, <laughs> this so. kid's terrible. Who's that? <laughs> yeah. So, Man. so just kind of, just kind of looking at all of those things and kind of feeling, you know, like I just felt like I didn't belong there. And that, you know, the, the tough thing is the teachers made me feel stupid, you know? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and a lot of them, I, well, at that time, none of them knew I had a disability. They just thought I was lazy. Yeah. So yeah. it made it tough. And then my parents were too proud in a negative way that they didn't tell anybody. So here I am, here I am struggling in school and everything in my life. And my parents were like, you're perfect. Don't tell anybody any different. And you're perfect. And if you, and just don't tell anybody any different. And I'm saying they're like, one, I don't feel too perfect. And two, I'm struggling, man. Right. You this know, is hard. yeah. So uh, eventually I got glasses, got contacts and stuff and struggle with, you know, the contacts for a while. 
and um, you know, ended up going technically legally blind twice. And I had two cornea transplants. I just had one last year. Um, so it's a tough one. I mean, you know, going blind is, is, a is a real, is a real eye-opening experience, you know, and (laughs) blind for me, isn't like you, I can always see lights and like reflections and stuff like that. So it's not Mm -hmm. like total darkness, but man, it, it's like you become an, like a, a wounded animal, you know, when, so whenever I'm, I'm on edge or something's going on with my eye, it's like, guess what? I'm, I'm vicious, you know, Mm. like, it's like, it, you just kick in this fight or flight and it's, I lived almost my whole life like that. And, um, it's really tough. It's really tough mentally, physically, emotionally, but, you know, I find my outlets to, you know, whether it's work, I love working. So I bury myself in work. Obviously, you know, I meditate now, which I didn't do before, you know, so I meditate two to three hours a day, regardless. Mm-hmm. I, I work probably till three or four in the morning. So I, I sleep well, I don't like waking up in the morning. That's one of the characteristics I carried over from my um, teen years. I'm not a morning guy, but man, I could work all night, like long. And, you know, I stopped drinking caffeine. um, So I just drink water, but I have more energy than most people. I mean, by by far, you know, so, so it's just, it's, it's kind of interesting. Once you kind of get in tune with your body and you really work it as like an instrument, it's like, you know, playing the flute or trumpet or playing the drums, it's like you get into sync and it's just, it's, you know, it works. Um, so I really been focusing on that personally and just getting myself in a place mentally, physically, and emotionally where I'm stable, you know, because it's tough. Anything could trigger me and all these other stuff. And, you know, it's like we talked about before. I mean, I wanted to commit suicide since I was seven, you know, so it's like having that. And then my brother committed suicide last year. It's tough. You know, it's a yeah. tough thing. You know, I don't know. Um, and with all this COVID stuff, it's really depressing, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel one and two. I launched the magazine in 99 and, um, that was basically coming out of like a recession. So I've always looked at recessions as opportunities, Mm -hmm. opportunities to change opportunities to evolve, to do different things. I mean, you know, I was just on a call earlier consulting for an education company and they're talking about how you know, the schools might not reopen. I said, good, everything should be virtual. There should be no going to school, forcing yourself to go to school. It should be virtual or it should be group taught to where you go in the parks and you're in this open atmosphere and you're learning and doing all this stuff. But most importantly, learning what you actually love. You know, just like colleges or universities, we're discussing that. It's like, why do I have to take all these classes I don't need to be a major in this? Why can't I just do four years in that and be an expert? Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I mean, I I, I lived uh, kind of a similar childhood, but nowhere near as, as challenging. I mean, my learning disabilities were self-imposed, you know, because <laughs> I was lazy and I didn't pay attention. Uh, yeah. But you were reading Lowrider. I was reading Hot Rod, you know, so we had kind of the mm. same the same thing going yep. on. And I cared far more about that than I did my biology book or, you know, the other stuff, my math or algebra, I could care less until I learned that I could start to use mathematics when it came to cars and engines and suspension. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's like, Oh no, I need to learn this stuff to advance. So. Yeah. Well, I, I never felt like I needed it because you know, those calculators. So I was good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's so true too. Yeah. Totally different. You know, if I was using like back in the day, I mean, I just shared a picture on Facebook where it was like an abacus where you're adding and stuff with mm-hmm. abacus. And I'm like, who used one of these, you know? And it's <laughs> right. just like, 
think of how archaic it was back then on kind of what we had available to us. And then all this technology just came in and it's like, wow, now it's obviously a technology overload, but you don't need to go to, you know, the, the library. You don't need to learn the, the system where you look up the, the, the books and all that stuff that was so difficult to figure out when I was younger, um, just to know where they are. But now the technology, I mean, you want to learn anything. It's all online. You want to, you know, watch a video on how to make it. You could watch a video on almost anything. It's yeah. amazing. Right now. So it's, it's, we're in a different world. And, um, you know, the kids today are, are growing up with social media, with technology, with all of these things. They don't know any different. So they're not going mm -hmm. to be able to sit there and go, I remember when I had a telephone line in my house and I used to stretch the cord because <laughs> I wanted some privacy. And I used to lay down down the hall with this stretched out cord, pulling it as far as I could so nobody could hear what I'm talking about, you know, right. Right. or calling people up and, you know, calling girls and be like, oh, hi, is so-and-so there? And they're like, you know, the mom's answering the phone or the dad. You're like, no, she's not here right now. You know, it's like, damn, <laughs> you know. Oh, if I had it's a like, nickel for every time I heard that. Yeah, oh, yeah. you know she doesn't so, want to talk know, to you anyway right yeah, yeah yeah so it's just it's just kind of going through that but the beautiful thing is like i was saying is you know, during these tough times there's tremendous opportunities i mean you know we also own tis and drop stars wheels and it's predominantly off-road wheels right now mm -hmm. and um our sales are up a hundred percent from last year Holy and our sales were up gosh. last year yeah our sales were up last year about 60 percent so wow. in two years, we're up 160%. Man, congratulations. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, our social media, we had 23 million impressions in the last 90 days. Yeah, oh that's gosh. serious. That is serious. You know, so, 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 and that's not Dub. That's the wheel side of it. Dub's also doing really well on that side of it. But it's tough because Dub's the shows and, you know, it's more old school, right? It's not following the new technology as much as potentially we're doing with the wheels. And right. we're evolving you know, and, and trying to get that methodology change within our staff and stuff. But, you know, with having no shows to do, it's like, okay, what do we do? We got to focus on social media and online and stuff like that. So it puts a renewed focus into the business. And um, I, I think it's exciting. Is it scary? Absolutely. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, if it's not scaring you, it's not exciting. It's like going fast in a car, you know, it's like, if it's not scary, it's not exciting. Right, right. Well, so you just touched on an interesting thing. So with the dub brand starting back in 99, you're already like a generation and a half, almost two generations into this. Bro, I mean, it's been 20 years. I mean, we're whack. We're old school now. You know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> all the, all, all, we're the squares now, man. Yeah, yeah, all, the, all, all the things we've done, you know, and I, I consult and help, you know, mentor, you know, younger people and not kids, but, you know, um, Gen Y, Gen Z, and all this other stuff, the you know, millennials. And, you know, I, I ask them, do you know about this? They're like, no. Okay, have you heard about this? No. You know, the only mm -hmm. thing, honestly, they've ever heard about that I could talk about is usually our video game because they played our video game when they were seven. You yeah. know what I mean? Wow. So it's yeah. it's crazy how is their evolution. But the, the good thing is I, I like to hear that because then it's like, okay, well, you know what? I need to reinvent myself. I need to do something differently because I don't want to force these kids to have to learn about me. I need to do something to make myself either relevant or not care about these people at all and just really focus on my niche. And mm -hmm. what I've noticed is the riches are in the niches. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so it's like it's that niche opportunity. I mean, look at, you know, even hot rodding. I mean, hot rodding when when Robert Peterson said, I'm going to call that a hot rod. That was not a hot rod before. It was a custom car. Okay. And then out, uh, 
Alberto Lopez said, I, I like that hot rod, but I'm going to put wire wheels on it. And I'm going to call it low rider. It's, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. And then when yep. dub, all we did was say, Hey, that car has 20 or bigger wheels on it. We're going to call that dub. And then yep. it, cre- it created that. So what's amazing is how media could basically create that cult following and it creates that niche. You know, it's like, I think uh, it'll create that niche. If the, if the vibe is already there, you know, everything was already kind of moving towards the, the, the 20 plus inch wheel size and low profile Mm -hmm. tires. That, that whole kind of style was already kind of happening. You just kind of put a lasso around it and pull it together and, and kind of named it and boom, you know, and, and when you were doing that, was that, did you think of those two references that you just gave me? Did you think, you know, we could do similar to what Lopez did with, with Lowrider if we, if we call these type of vehicles dubs? Was that the goal yeah. or did that just kind of happen? No, I, I think it happened. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a really big guy in kind of models. So I view companies and I try to model them, right? So it's like, what do they do? They do shows. They do this. So I, I create kind of like a spreadsheet of all the things they do. And then all the things that I think they should do. And then I put that together and say, okay, what is the opportunity? Where are the holes in their business? So to me, I've always admired the writer, the shows and everything. And I said, there's two things that they're doing that I think are not good for them in in a growth opportunity. One was they were only 13 inch wire wheels. So if the guy had 20 inch wire wheels, they didn't feature them. They, and they were predominantly Hispanic. So if a Japanese guy, from Tokyo might've had wire wheels. I mean, they featured some guys, but not really. If you're African-American, you usually didn't get featured in a lowrider until later on. Early mm-hmm. on, you were Hispanic on 13 inch and maybe 14s, and that was mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So it, it, they, they, they had a micro niche going and that really helped them grow. But when hip hop music and you know clubs started diversifying and people and gentrifying and all these other things, then it became less niche. And it's kind of like, well, you know what? I'm Hispanic, but I drive a car with dubs on it now. I just, And I kind of saw that. So what triggered, there was two things that triggered my idea to start dub back there in, in 1999 was one, Lowrider didn't evolve into the African-American space and, and embrace what I call African-American hip hop music because they were so used to just Hispanic, you know, Chicano rap music. Mm-hmm. So, and then at the time I was doing street promotions for a a magazine called The Source Magazine, which is an East Coast hip hop magazine based out of New York. And they had all these artists, you know, and all this other stuff. And, and I was just like, yo, this is, this is hot. And then hip hop started kind of invading the U and the West Coast with East Coast hip hop. And, you know, we also had the gangster rap, but Mm -hmm. it was, it was different. It was kind of evolving, like melting. So I looked at that. And then what I did was I looked at, their ABC audit for um, um, the Source magazine, which is their circulation audit. And mm-hmm. they were putting out 500 plus thousand magazines, but it was all kind of on the East Coast and down South. So it's like the smile states, right? Mm-hmm. Then I looked up um, Lowrider's audit and they were the West Coast, almost identical distribution, but it was East Coast and West Coast. So I said, if I put those two markets together, I could have the whole, the whole US. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the indicators. The under indicator was I was in um, my hotel room. I think back in the day, I was at the SEMA show. I was at the first, or, you know, the C- I was at, at SEMA. No, no, sorry. I was at the magic show. I was at the fashion conference in um, in um, Vegas. And I walked in after partying in the club and I turned on the TV and there was an auction, like a car auction on. 
And, I, you know, it might have been Barrett Jackson or whatever. And they go, this car is a celebrity-owned car. It's going to sell for double the value. And I'm sitting there going, Who's, whose car is it? You know, it was a, I remember it was a white Mercedes S500 Rentec engine, Lorenzer mm. body kit, Lorenzer wheels. I mean, it was really, really done right. Really, really nice car. And they go, this car is going to sell double the value because it's owned by a celebrity. And then it's, you know, sold for double the value. And they go, you know, thank you for Alan Jackson, you know, the celebrity owner. And mm. I'm thinking, who the hell is Alan Jackson? You know? <laughs> I'm going, who the hell is Alan Jackson? But, and I didn't know until after I asked somebody. And they're like, oh, it's a country music singer. I was like, that's crazy that a country music singer, this cowboy dude, could give that much value to that Benz. Imagine if I did something with Dre or Pac or Snoop or any of these guys with that yep. same car because they would drive that same car. And that gave me the juices to do the concept for Dub Magazine. So it was... Alberto Lopez not wanting to widen his niche, even though the market was changing. And one of the other indicators was lowrider advertising started to become big chrome rims, to become big chrome rims. So their advertising didn't match their content. So I looked at that as an opportunity. Oh, man. That's all really, so, really sharp stuff, my friend. Yeah. So, you you know, a lot of people, you got to look at indicators. It's like when you look at an ecosystem, it's like this eats this, this eats this, this eats this, this, this builds this, this tears it down, this does this, this here's the predators, here's the prey. Like if you really look at life in that way, dude, it's pretty easy to follow and understand what's going on. But the problem is most people are trying to find that big idea or get rich quick. So they're not looking at any indicators. They're just looking at the opportunity and they get you know, blinded by the glitter, you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. But it, it does take a special kind of mindset to be able to start identifying those indicators too. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, it's um, Newsweek magazine named me as one of the top 10 big thinkers for big business in the 21st century. And they called me, I said, dude, you got the wrong number, man. You know, <laughs> I'm a street kid, I can barely read. You know, we have a small business, nope. but it was, you know, trending. But they said they recognized me for my thinking. And then I, I remember going home. I, I don't think I was, I, I was married or maybe not. And I was talking to my wife now and um, I asked her back then, I said, you know, do I think differently than most people? And she's like, yeah, people don't see what you'd see. So you're talking to them about what you're seeing and nobody has a clue. Nobody yeah, has a clue. Right. So I, and then when nobody understands what I'm talking about, I used to get really upset and get frustrated. So from that day forward, I really worked on painting pictures with words. So that way I could explain to them and I'm trying to get them to visualize what I'm seeing. But the beautiful thing about that is they have their own creative expression. So they could take what I'm doing and make it better. You know? Sure. So I encourage people it, to yeah. do that. Yeah. I mean, but even if they don't get it, it might spawn like a different opportunity or different ideas. And it's all about evoking emotion. And that includes anger to go out there and shift your thinking to a different perspective, you know? So sometimes I use anger as strategy, you know, my well, wife I mean, hates if, it, but you know, hey. <laughs> I bet. But if it's a source of fuel and it, it keeps you moving, you know, I guess it's better than just getting angry and doing nothing about it. Yeah. I mean, and that's so many people do that, you know? So for me, it's like, let me use that. So I tell people we're all like nuclear reactors and we're just stuffed with all this, you know, nuclear energy, this bad energy that's just sitting in us and burning us down. So I looked at it, it's like we're like a nuclear reactor. The more I could turn that into good usable energy, I could light up the world. <laughs> well, and in many ways you have been. So, so dub launches, um, 
it's funny mm-hmm. getting back to Alan Jackson's story. It's mm-hmm. interesting to me that they were featuring an Alan Jackson car that wasn't a truck. You know, you'd think it would be a very stereotypical right. country music, you know. <laughs> no, no. And that, I was blown away. I'm like, dude, who's this white dude that has this car? You know, right. it's like yeah. at the time, I mean, was I was very, yeah, I was very limited mentally on what I knew too. I mean, you know, at the time, I don't think I traveled, or, I obviously didn't travel internationally. I only traveled maybe to different cities in my own town because you're afraid of getting killed, you yeah. know? So it's like you're, you're talking to somebody that has just a really limited mindset that jumped into business and just started kind of meeting people. And it was just, it was, it was really cool. But I think I was just talking about this the other day. Somebody was asking me and I said, the growing up street and not being easily intimidated and watching people get shot and get shot at and, you know, watching people die and get stabbed and all these different things, you, you built a different mindset. So when I'm going to meet corporate America, I mean, there, there was in USA Today, there was an article that came out about me in the money section. And I said, this is easy, man. The automotive industry, you don't have to worry about anyone killing you, you know? Right. <laughs> you know? That's true. And, and and I'm sure there's some deaths like Mickey Thompson and stuff like that, you know, rest in peace. But it's a lot safer than obviously what I was into was hip hop and music and lifestyle and fashion and, and, and events. Um, so I said that quote, and I remember going to Michelin the next week and they said, is somebody trying to kill you? Like, you know, they were so concerned that I said that, but I was like, no, it's, it's, that was basically saying how difficult the music industry and the stuff that I did before was. And then you get into this more corporate environment with less thugs. And it's like, you know, I was the thug. (laughs) You were scaring them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, we came to SEMA and, you know, just, set up across the street and street team the crap out of it, wrap vehicles, wrap buildings. And Simo was like, what, what the hell are these guys doing? You know? Well, they um, didn't know quite what to make of the whole thing. And, and you, you know, another element that you pulled together is the entertainment side and the celebrity side. And you had some really unprecedented access to some major, major names to be in your magazine. How did all that stuff come to be? You know, it started originally, you know, myself, my partner, Herman Flores, Haytham Adad. So we founded the company. Then we borrowed 20 grand from another uh, gentleman named Clay that lent us or gave us the money, invested, and then that's what legitimized the business and took it to the next level. Um, But what's really interesting was we knew about cars. So all of us were kind of car guys, right? So then we knew what looked hot and what didn't. And to be honest with you, when the celebrities, when we first started, you know, these guys didn't even have rims on their cars. They didn't, you know, they weren't into cars. A lot of them were, you know, either here and they kind of had old school low riders and this and that, but they weren't, they, the car culture wasn't as developed as it started to become with everyone. I mean, those guys that were more seasoned in cars and other guys. So with us having that street credibility and knowing what to look good and how to build a really cool car, people are like sold on it. You know, they're like, well, that looks dope. Like, I want to be in it. So, like, we're part of this wave of making custom rims and tires and all that stuff socially acceptable out of the hood, out of the streets. So mm-hmm. we took what was hood culture and made it worldwide. We took a name, you know, Dub is, you know, the acronym for 20, Double Dime. That's where I got it from. But they called a 20 bag of marijuana a dub sack. They mm-hmm. called, you know a lap dance, a $20 uh, dance at the strip club, a dub dance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, so I took something that was street credible and made it into something that was 
corporate credible enough to be in Walmart since 2001 selling product. So th- <laughs> that, that was a that that was a really difficult balance that you're able to go on because how do you maintain that credibility without alienating all of these bigger companies that you could work with Procter and Gamble, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Monster Energy, um, Energizer Battery, um, you know, I mean, Mr. Yeah. Clean, you know, I mean, you know, all the big autos, European autos, American autos. I mean, we've worked with all of them. And here we are, street kids from the neighborhoods getting these corporate deals worth millions of dollars with all these Fortune 50 companies. It was it was crazy. You know, it was not even believable. You know, those times. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. There's times when I'd meet with people, including like my parents. And I'm like, this is a deal I'm working on right now. They're like, yeah, whatever, dude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever, <laughs> you <know>? dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's oh, like you know, and great. and but it, it's 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 crazy how it all it's it's like magic, you know. It's like I'm at PepsiCo, I get out of a cab, and I'm up in Purchase, New York, and it's me and Pierce Flynn, which is at the time our uh, VP of Business Development for Dub, and we get out of the car, and there's this older gentleman standing there looking at the statue because they have all these statues and stuff. It looks like a college campus, you know, their campus. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, we're talking to him and really, really cool guy, you know, and then we walk in to the lobby because we're late for, you know, not late, but we're, we're trying to get to the meeting. And I look up and I see the guy's picture on the wall. He was the founder of Pepsi. We just met the founder of Pepsi on Holy accident smokes. outside. Wow. Right. <laughs> then we go into the meeting and they're like, we, we thought he was a ghost. We didn't even think he exists. Nobody's ever seen him and nobody's ever talked to him. Wow. And you just happened just to talk- bump into him. I just have a great conversation when I talked to him, which I was like blown away. And also too, my first people I've ever talked to at GM was Gary Calger and Rick Wagner, the president and the CEO. Yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. like, and because we set up a booth at the um, Detroit Auto Show, which they've been amazing and they help legitimize our company too. So we set up a display there and I think we had like Shaq's Escalade and you know somebody else's Hummer or this or that, and they're on 26s. And I remember there was a group of four people and there was like security and then two guys, they walked up in suits and they're like, you know, asking me about Jack's Escalade and, and the Hummer. And I'm like, who are these dudes? You know, whatever. And then we're talking and they're like, Oh, they're from GM. Cause they had like GM lapels, you know, yeah, one of these dudes is really tall by the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, they are. And I was <laughs> just like, okay. So I'm talking about the products and everything they're asking me and I'm telling them like, you know, Chevy should do this. Chevy should do this. Cadillac should do this. And I don't nice. know who they are. You know, no, excellent. Just, You're telling Rick Wagner what his company should be yeah, doing. Yeah, I, I'm it. just being. I'm just being 100. I'm just being truthful. That's all I knew. You know. And um, at the end of it, they both gave me their cards, and then they walked away. And then other people, it started getting a crowd around the booth, and I'm thinking like, what the hell's going on? You know. And then when they walked away, I remember they, you know, both gave me the card and walked away. And I didn't even get a chance to read them. I just put them in my pocket because I'm like, ah, oh, these guys from GM, you know, whatever. And then one of the reporters came up to me and said, do you know who that is? And I'm like, some guys from GM, some white guys, you know? And they're like, <laughs> that's the president and the ch- chairman of the board for GM. And I was just like, <laughs> I was like, oh. and you know, I, I think I, I was cocky back then. So I said, I don't give a crap. You know what I'm saying? I probably used a different word than that. But it was like, who cares? You know, but what was interesting was that was, those were the first two people I met from GM. That's amazing. You know, so I, I'm, I don't know if it's just luck or what, but luck favors the prepared, you know, and 
you know, it's like, as I progress, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aggressive, you know? So I remember going like, even with like guys like Dita Zetcha, when he took over Chrysler, we're doing all the Chrysler stuff. Yeah. You know, everybody would go to the press conferences and try to stand there and talk to him when he's in the middle of the press conference. Okay. At the right time. Dude, I wait outside the booth in another booth and I'm watching him. I'm like a stalker, you know, <laughs> and I'm watching him go saying bye, everything. As soon as he steps out of that booth, I beeline to him because I know he's going to pass me. Mm -hmm. And I start talking to him. So I was really strategic and I met everybody. Obviously, they, they love what we did, but I was so lucky because I put myself out there. I was not intimidated by these people. You know, that's why I, I recommend to people that are there watching, they're human beings. He, he bleeds red just like I do. It doesn't matter whether he's the, making 20, 30 million a year and he's the president of this major corporation and I'm broke and I'm a street kid. But you know what? They're normal people. They're human beings. They stopped to talk to me. We talked about stuff and eventually we got business done. And thank God for me having that ability to not be intimidated because other people don't know how to respond when they find out who these people are. But for me, I didn't care. I didn't care whether it was the president or the janitor. I'm going to treat them with the same respect. Well, sure. Yeah. And, and I think when people talk to you, they understand right away that you're not just some guy that is displaying a car. You know, you've got your heads on straight and you've got ideas and you've got the ability to bring people together. And for a Chrysler or for a GM, you know, that, that's a secret sauce. They, they want what you've got. You know, they just I think they had to realize that you were the guy that was able to help deliver that. And once they figured that out, um, you know, because you are you think the way you do and, and you put together products and events and, and presentations and the magazines and everything, that's something that they can't do. They don't have that mm -hmm. ability on their own. So you were definitely something they, you know, someone they needed to talk to. So that's really cool well, that, you know, you, you push to make that happen. Yeah. They were, they learned really quick. I mean, you know, what I tell people, our success was with dub magazine. We were Instagram and Facebook before Instagram and Facebook existed. We gave people access to people that they, idolized and looked up to just like right now with you know whether it's kim kardashian was on the cover of dub before she even did the tv show she was at our mm -hmm. dub show and stuff mm -hmm. like that so you know and, and we we're doing cool stuff with her and then you know now look at her social media presence i mean you know they they are a media ma mogul and media magnet mm -hmm. and channel and everything and you know so it's like back then we were that for it we were the netflix we were the instagram we were the facebook and then it evolves. And then it's like, if we don't use these tools properly, which I don't believe we did, we have 3.5 million followers, but we should have way more than that. And we should be really leveraging it. But we were kind of stuck. We were stuck between the old school and the new school. We're in that rut. You know, so we only, uh, you know, it's like we only got half of it when we should have engulfed ourselves a little bit more. But, you know, it's all age. When I came into SEMA and, you know, doing the first shows and stuff, I was 16 years old. Man. Then when I launched Dub, I was 24 when I went mm -hmm. back to SEMA as Dub, 24 years old. I mean, at 24, you know, you're not thinking about much besides probably having a nice car and trying to talk to as many women as possible. You yeah, know? you're trying to just survive That's, that week at SEMA. I remember I was 25 my first year, so that, that was a head mm -hmm. spinner for sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's totally different. But I walked around going like, dude, this is so cool. But what is it going to look like in 10 years? What is SEMA going to look like in 10 years? You know, mm -hmm. is SEMA going to be a virtual show? I mean, you look at all these major auto shows, they're saying they're, you know, Geneva, they canceled the show for next year. 
New York canceled the show. LA and SEMA are uh, really the only ones that, in my opinion, are still going to try to hold the ground. Everybody else canceled. You know, Geneva's not till next year. Yeah, that's crazy. They already canceled and for 21. Yeah, and, and part of it, too, is because the car companies are realizing that they could debut it on their own without going to the auto shows, and they could control it. Much like, you know, when, back in the day, we did toys, you know, the Dub City diecast toys and stuff. We did a deal with Jada. We sold over 25 million toys, like Hot Wheel toys, you know, yeah. but it was called Dub City. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's like we used to have to go to Toy Fair. We had to go to the Hong Kong Toy Fair. We had Dude, now you don't have to go to any of those shows. Those shows don't even—they barely even exist anymore, because you could debut your stuff direct to the public. Well, or, so or yeah, can... it, it, that's a really interesting concept too, because those are consumer level products, and um, you still had to do your behind the scenes with uh, distribution. But you, you've always done really well with distributing your stuff, like you were saying, getting into Walmart and you know big retailers right out of the box. Um, we had, uh, Peter McGillivray on the show a couple episodes ago, and we were talking about this very same concept of, uh, what, what's the future of these type of events. And mm -hmm. I think that, um, releasing products and unveiling things to the consumer, that aspect can certainly be handled in a virtual or online or digital realm. But I still mm -hmm. think there's definitely something to be said for the face-to-face -face meeting to be able to get your business done. For example, if you were watching a live stream of Rick, Rick Wagner walk by, you wouldn't have been able to have that time with him. No, no, I agree. But now I could hit him up on LinkedIn or I could, you know, so there's all these new avenues to do that. And then now with, you know, like I use blue jeans, you know, we're using clean feed right now for this particular thing. I mean, this was not even possible 20 years ago, you right. know? Yeah. yeah. So, so now this is the norm. Think about when our kids are older and their kids, they're not going to go to face-to-face. -face. A face-to-face -face meeting is going to be like, you know, you're driving a horse and buggy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah like, right. Well, it, I'm envisioning you'll be able to drive your car and look at the virtual passenger next to you as a hologram and sit down and talk with them, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I hope so. And that way you could go in the carpool for and without getting a ticket, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you are a thinker. Right. <laughs> so right. we'll sell that, you know, hey, yeah. carpool buddy, virtual carpool That's buddy. That's it. And, you know, we'll get it recognized by the CHP and or the highway patrol and the state troopers and you're good. You know, the, uh, and, but that's the thing. We'll be the hologram yeah, but that, lane. The, but that's the thing. It's that forward thinking. It's like, okay, there's this problem. How do we turn it into an opportunity? Yeah. Well, and, and be, to be able to recognize where, like you said, where those holes in the markets are is, uh, mm -hmm. is the gold, you know, because there's, there's a product to fill everything. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the right application to where it's really needed. So people want to pull it from you instead of you pushing it on them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been talking to a lot of venture capital groups and companies and investors and in looking in aftermarket automotive. Nobody's looking for any company that has a distributed product right now. Really? Yeah. They want uh, direct to retail. That's, yeah. that's their biggest growth area. And that's where we're going to invest a lot of money in right now. So um, manufacture direct and, and yeah. I guess the mechanisms are more and more obvious, you know, the, the uh, uh, ability for a company to pop up a site or to have, you know, uh, you know, something through the phone or whatever. I mean, everybody's selling on Instagram right now. You're just selling in the DMS, you know, you're posting, you're commenting, you're selling in the DMS. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different world. You know, it's scary. It's really scary, but, 
I think that everyone needs to really embrace it. And then when you're going direct from a manufacturer to the customer, I mean, your, your margins could be a hundred percent or higher as opposed to less, you know, with sure. a distributed product, you know, you're working on 10, 20, 30% margin. You could bump that up to 70. So say, you know, you could do a third of the business and make the same amount of money. Right. And then so, by doing that, you can provide service as well. Well, most importantly, I think the biggest thing too, and why we stopped kind of selling our products in big box retail and doing some of the stuff we did was because the big box retailers and the distributors sometimes stunt our creativeness. They don't allow us to take risks. So when you sell direct, you could take risk. And if it's your risk, you're taking it. But there's enough margin that if you hit something and, you know, say you do a whack product, you could blow it out at, at cost and still recover your costs. So that you're mitigating your risk, but you're able to move and be creative. And that's really what it's about. It's about what's the next best thing? Who's the most innovative? How are you reaching these people? And, you know, we're reaching 23 million impressions for probably about $5,000. Huh. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So it's, you know, it's a different game. If you know, it's like, you know, there it, there's all of these racehorses. And if you know how to ride them and you know how to take care of them, you're going to be very successful. But the problem is people are still trying to pull trailers with this racehorse. It just doesn't work. Yeah, you know? they're trying to plow with it. Yeah. So, 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 and then they're getting hurt or all these other things because it's not designed for that. This is a racehorse. This is, you get it out and it goes fast. It's really strong, you know? And, yeah. and that's really where business is right now. And it, it's been there and it's heading there very rapidly, very rapidly. And, you know, again, just think about the margins. When you sell direct, you get the margins. But if you don't know how to market the product, you're, you're dead in the water. You can have the best product in the world. No distribution and no um, marketing, you could be dead. But you could have a mediocre product with great distribution and and great marketing, and it'll, it'll knock it out of the park. Well, and we've seen that over and over again. You know, it's not always the best thing that wins. Yeah, and another thing about going direct to customer is it's a worldwide marketplace. It's open twenty four seven, worldwide. Yep. So you could sell to any country at any time of the day. It's twenty four seven. It's amazing. Um, what the opportunities are, you know, abroad in other countries and how big the market size is and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's amazing. It's such a great opportunity. And, you know, it's, it's really sad right now because of COVID and all that stuff. And don't get me wrong. There's parts of our business that are affected greatly by it, especially on the you know publishing side and stuff. But it's like, this is, you know, the world saying, Hey guys, like, you know, if the dinosaurs would have evolved, they'd still be walking around right now. Right. So we just, we can't be the dinosaurs. We got to be evolving. And, you know, for me, uh, I surround myself with a lot of younger people that are really smart and I help mentor them, but they're helping me probably more than I'm helping them. Don't tell them that. You know? <laughs> but, It'll just be between us. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, the, the reality of it is their information they're giving me is probably as valuable or more valuable than the information I'm giving them. Plus, I'm an old guy. They ain't going to listen to me anyways. They're going to go and make their problems. But I'm old guy that's smart enough to listen to what they have to say and put it all together. You know? Sure. And, so uh, it's like, I've you, been there, done that. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to take things from scratch and build them. I mean, you know, dub is you know, between dub and the wheel companies and all the other businesses. I mean, this is my seventh company, you know, that right. I've started from scratch. And, um, you know, a lot of them gross, you know, um, for sure in the millions, you know, double, yeah. triple digit millions. So, I mean, 
you know, track record speaks for itself. But again, still these, these people, you know, they always ask for help, especially the younger generation. They don't want to listen, you know. It's like trying to tell your kids something. They don't want to listen to you. You, know? <laughs> you, you, you didn't either. No, no, I know. And that's what makes it so amazing. So for me, I'm just telling them, I, I basically give them, most of the time I try to piss them off. And, <laughs> and part of it is because I want to see how bad they want it. And that's what business is about. It's like when you hear all these negative things, you still want to do it, then yeah, go do it. But when you hear all these negative things and you don't want to do it, then you, you, you're not strong enough for these games. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's so many different things that you touch on that I, I find fascinating. Um, what ends up being the, the, the common thread, you know, w when your product evolves and, and, you know, you're basically telling us you have to work the systems to be able to reach the people, but you mm -hmm. could reach them and they, they still might not hear you, you know? So, well, what it's is all it about the product. It's all about the product. You know, if you reach them with the right product, it doesn't matter what the message is. If you have the right product, you're, you know, the key thing is in product development, solve a problem. What is the problem that exists? You know, mm -hmm. if, you know, it's like if you got water on your windshield, and you're trying to drive, maybe a windshield wiper will solve that problem. So it's a natural progression. You know, if, yeah, if those you're were going perceived to, car, to be illegal at one point, did I ever tell you? Yes. Well, see, the thing is, he said perceived, so it's, that's that's the safety net. But, uh -huh. but the re the reality of it is, you know, it's like it's just evolving. It's just taking that risk and understanding kind of, hey, where's the opportunity in this? And there's an opportunity in everything. I mean, whenever I go out and I'm working with people, I show them a toothpick. I show them a cup. I show them a napkin. I show them everything. I said, look, a designer designed that. The guy that did that straw in the in the – you know, whatever glass that they go in or this or that, that guy made millions off of that, 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 um, not the straw, the toothpick with the umbrella. That guy made millions off of that umbrella, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's really looking at things. Everyone looks at like, I want to design a car part. I, no, let's start with something really simple that people actually really need. Cause you're going to make the most money and not in just these niches, you know, but most importantly, they, they, all those things are designed. Everything we touch, these, this cord that's in my phone charging, the 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 the, the phone itself, you know. The the let me ask you another trivia question. What was the first iPhone's inspiration in design? Hmm, that's a good question. Because remember, it was black and chrome, had glass, right? Yeah. Some were more white in chrome. Yeah. Yep. So it had like and chrome, kind, right? Kind of curved back and the flat yeah. screen and. Yeah. So where was where was that? What what gave it? You know, where did they get their influence from? I'll certainly tell you, it was not something to comfortably fit your hand. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. But that that goes back to where their influence was. What was it? It was the bathroom. So you have the toilet, the porcelain. You have the yeah. black. You have the different things. You have the glass. It's not a comfortable place, but it feels clean. That's what they went after. Interesting. It, yeah. it does. It does almost look like a medicine cabinet kind of. Yeah, yeah, because it feels clean, and that's what they went for. But that's getting in people's psyche and saying, "This is clean. This yeah. this is an experience." They wrap all their cords and stuff, so it feels like you're at Christmas every day. You unwrap the box and you unwrap everything individually because they want you to be that kid that's opening five presents, not one. <laughs> that's true. So, yeah. 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 yeah, they got me. They got me. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so people love buying their products because the experience is so awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's some heady stuff. Yeah, no, another have, thing. Uh, go, go ahead, man. Another thing about innovators, right, is you look at like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, and you know these are innovators. These are guys that are just, just you know, I mean, just disruptors of the world and just brilliant, you know, just masterminds. When they're developing a product, you don't think Steve Jobs had the iPhone 11 already designed? He already did, but he matched it with technology and said, okay, we're going to create a progressional map based on technology and based on battery life. And we're going to introduce this in this sequence because it's going to get people to upgrade and upgrade. And we're going to get these opportunities to sell accessories. But most importantly, we're going to give them the phone that functions the best it can be with what technology is out there. Today, yeah. Today. Right. And then tomorrow. And then that, so they had a roadmap. If I was going to design the phone, I would have came out with iPhone 10 first, even though I know technology and the battery life one can support it because it's my ego. Yeah. You want to try to hit, hit, hit something amazing right out of the box. And that's, that's what they do, but you need to have that progression. Same thing with, you know, look at Elon Musk with PayPal. I mean, it's such a disaster with fraud, such a disaster with fraud. Yeah. And I believe he knew that when he launched it. But it also had all of these great opportunities. He built it and sold it. A guy like me would have stopped and said, oh, my God, there's too much fraud. There's nothing to do. Sorry. I'm going to just kill this thing because there's no way anybody's going to want to use it with all this fraud. Right. And I would have spent all my time trying to fix the fraud. He didn't care. Not saying he didn't care, but he knew that it was super valuable despite that there's some fraud issues that could happen. And he was right. And it, he sold it for a lot of money. You know, look at battery technology and what he's doing with the Tesla. You know, look mm -hmm. what he's doing with the vehicles and every, you know, the, the solar and all these other batteries for homes. I mean, the guy's just like, you know what, this is going to do so good for the world that it doesn't matter if, if I got to go through these bumps and all that stuff to get there, because once people actually see what it can do, they're going to buy in. Look but, at yeah, all the it, electric cars now. It needs to happen for everybody. Yeah. 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 But he, you know, he was smart. I mean, you know, I, I, I put my foot in my mouth. I was speaking at this convention. They they hired me to speak. And um, it was an autonomous car convention in San Diego. And this was early on. And I was the keynote speaker. And I remember sitting there talking and about this and that. And then I, I got this ego shot. And also I took, you know, like, hey, this is a threat to my market, you know. So I kind of took a 180 on the, on the talk. And I said, look, guys, hmm. you guys might as well stop doing what you're doing because – Nobody wants a car that drives itself. Nobody wants a car. Yeah, you know, this and that. And I went over the enjoyment and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they were all shocked. I mean, the whole room was silent. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? what we hired you for, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, we're paying this guy? Like, God, you know. And um, I walked out of there and I was just like, yeah, I told them. Well, guess what? I have a Tesla in my driveway. Right. <laughs> so it was my ego that didn't allow the opportunity and I didn't see it. Um so I really remind myself of that every time because I guarantee you all of those engineers that worked on all of the uh, electric cars and all the self-braking and all of those things that, that I didn't look at it as it's safer. I just looked at it as somebody's trying to limit my enjoyment. Mm, yeah. So they, well, they made it a safer world. And I sat and I guarantee you, if anybody's listening there, I'm sorry because I, I didn't know I was ignorant. I was stupid. And I felt like it was a threat to my business. And you guys are the the brilliant ones, and you guys were the ones on the cutting edge. And salute to you guys. And guess what? I bought a Tesla. Right. It worked. It worked. It, you know, so, it worked. And you know, again, but it's 
sometimes we don't know. We have such limited information. It's hard to make decisions. So how do you end up keeping your own, you know, ego and your own ideas in check? Because I think that's a problem a lot of people have is they become a true believer in an idea or a product of their own, and they don't recognize that it might not be the best way to go because they've got money or time invested in it. But it sounds like you've learned to kind of be nimble in that respect to, uh, to go where the opportunity is. Well, I, you know, and part of it, dude, I, I just feel like I'm blessed. I live longer than I should have. You know what I'm saying? I should have been dead or in jail a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So it's like I've I've outlived myself. So I thank God every day for that. And for me, everybody has to have that type of attitude to where it's like, you know what? I'm so fortunate and blessed to be here. What is my, you know, what am I here for? Like, what what am I here to do? How do I make a, a, a big difference in society? And when I stopped chasing money is when I actually started making money. Yeah. Hmm. So it's I, a totally different. Yeah. When you're stopped chasing money, you're going to make money and really focus on doing the right thing. I know, I know people are like, no, it's not, you know, when you do the right thing, you don't make money. It's like the nice guys finish last thing. But at the end of the day, we all get old and the nice guy ends up winning anyway. So it doesn't matter. You know, you might not get them when they're tens. They might be fives by the time you get them, but at least you get them. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> well, but, that's another good way to look but, at you know, it. The, the reality of it is life changes and everything is temporary. Everything is temporary, you know? And, you know, it's like at one time I had a big old mansion, nine bedroom house, 15 cars and all that stuff. And guess what? I wanted to commit suicide. I mean, I would stop myself from killing myself almost every day. Business was booming, did over 50 million in this, did this deal, did this. Came out New York Times, USA Today, you know, Entrepreneur Magazine, all this stuff. And dude, I was just like, I I can't do this anymore. You know, what was it that made you want to off yourself? I mean, was it anxiety? Was it fear? Was it what what was the the emotion? It was all the above. You know, I think part of it was I didn't feel like I deserved to be there. And that's part of it. When you don't feel like you deserve something, you can never keep it. So if you don't feel like you deserve your wife, your kids, your this, your that, your car, you'll never be able to keep it. You won't be happy. So it's really practicing appreciation, you know, and, you know, it's like I tell people, you know, who who wins the rat race, a rat. So do you want to be a rat? No, take yourself out of that rat race and really think about what makes you happy and what, you know, really, you know, evokes that emotion. Focus on those things. I'm not saying and don't quit your day job until your hobby's making more money than your day job. I mean, you could do both. And I encourage people to hustle, you know, hustle. Um, but going back to that thing, it's just, you know, it's a lot of trauma, a lot of negative things that happened to me, a lot of things that I've seen and experienced in my life, a uh, family dynamic, um, you know, just growing up and just being angry and, and having that anxiety and that fear. And, you know, the fear of not being good enough or being smart enough or being strong enough. I mean, that's, that's how I grew up. And, you know, it's just, I had to change my mindset. I had to understand that life is not a zero sum game where we're not all at zero. And if you go plus one, I go negative one. It doesn't work that way. That only works that way in like a street corner or a park or something like that. It's not, there's enough business and opportunities for everybody. So I had to really understand that, that life's not a zero sum game. And then I had to realize that too, you're only as good as the last thing you did. I mean, I could have this resume that's crazy, but if I'm not doing anything that's really cool today, it doesn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. and you got to be willing to move. I mean, look at us. You know, we Dub Magazine launched the Truck Magazine. It's like why? Because that's what's trending. 
you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like 80s. And think about it, too. History will always repeat itself. It's 80s and early 90s right now. Lower trucks. I mean, remember Trader's Truck Accessories? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I told the founder of that, I said, dude, do you still own the name? Because you could kill it right now with the row pans and all that stuff that you were doing back in the day. And everybody knows your name, like still. But, you know, I don't, you know, will, will he ever come out and do it again? I don't know. But, dude, it's 80s all over again. People want... You know, I mean, how many Nissan hard bodies do you see out there on Porsche alloys again? It's crazy. It I'm is. like, dude, you know, that stuff's it's all coming back hard. Yeah. And but it's it's new hot rod. You know, we grew up around we didn't grow up around 57 Chevys and all that right. stuff and 55s and, you know, low boys. And we, you know, even though we are around it because we're in the culture, that wasn't what we wanted to drive. We wanted to drive a 64 Impala. We wanted to drive a. <laughs> a Honda Civic back in the day or a Toyota Supra or, mm-hmm. you know, this, this um, Nissan hard body or, you know what I mean? Like that's what we wanted when we were younger. That's what I wanted, you know? Yeah. So I guess I when I Monte get Carlo older, SS. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, Monte Carlo SS, you know, super sport or, you know, this or that, but it's, it's like, it's an evolution and it changes. So it's like knowing that like people are, you know, building these cars from the eighties and it's like, to me, I mean, you know, you heard all the time, the cars from the 80s were some of the ugliest cars ever made, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but that, that's so was the matters. fashion. So was the fashion, but that's that's all. I mean, I was <laughs> talking to Chip Boos at SEMA, and I said, what's next, you know? The Riddler Award's going to be like a Monte Carlo SS pretty soon. It's going to be that, because it's already, I think it was in the 70s. It's going to go in the 80s next, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna be a, possible. It's, yeah, it's going to be a Monte Carlo Supersport or something like that, or, you know, or a, um, the old school body, you know, not, you know, like an 80 Camaro, like the IROC Z, you know, that's yeah, going right. to be the Riddler. <laughs> that's going to be the Riddler. Part, <laughs> the Fox know? body Mustang. Or Fox body Mustang. <laughs> you know, old school Celine Mustang is going to be, Celine's yeah. going to be the, you know, Riddler award. Yeah, he could be onto something there. Yeah, and, I just, and, uh... I just bumped, I just bumped into Steve Celine and they just opened up a Celine factor in China, you know. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, but that that's what I'm saying. There's opportunities all over the place and there's really good and sometimes you gotta sit it out, you know, and sometimes things gotta fall apart before you can put it back together. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Yeah. It's being able to roll with those changes and put it back together and have the presence of mind to stay with it is the trick. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes you gotta fully let it fall apart, let it rest on in the ashes, and then it's like go forward. You know, it's like I was talking at this one event and I said, you know, when I'm ready to leave something, I view it as it burned down. Like it just caught on fire. It's over. I'm done. Like, especially, (laughs) you know, with my relationships with women before, it's kind of like when I'm out, it's like the house burned down. I'm out. You know what I'm saying? It's like a plane crash. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's like, and that's the way I view it. So people are like, how do you walk away from some of the things? It's like, yo, it's, it's already burned up. It's done. Like go, you know? Don't go yeah. back and try to look for it. It's like, it's done. You got to go, you know? And I, I still do that now. I mean, I don't have memorabilia. I don't have photos. I, don't, I mean, to me, it's like, you're only as good as the last thing you did. I don't want to sit there. And I think it's cool now. I regret that now. Because like people are asking me, you know, like if I'm doing interviews or, hey, can you send us some photos for this article or this? Or they want to do that. I'm like, I don't really have any pictures. And I called the photographers that we work with. I said, hey, do you have any pictures? They're like, no, because you would get pissed off every time I try to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, there's a, a line in a John Hyatt song where he says, I, I, I've never looked forward to looking back, you know, so yes. I see what you're saying, you know, and uh, some people are more nostalgic than others. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm fortunate to have a few things from my history that uh, I was telling Mike the other day, I've got a, a, a 35 millimeter slide from a camping trip when I was I was not even two years old and our family went camping in Colorado and my dad was a police officer and he bought his old police car. So it's a 1970 Chevy uh, Biscayne four door police car without the lights on it, you know, because it was a civilian car at that point. And it, cool. had a, uh, it was it was cool. It had a 400 small block in it. And, you know, it was, it was a neat car. A little picture of me leaning against this car. And in the picture, you can see the front license plate. Well, I still have the license plate. That's cool. And, to me, that was cool because it's a physical connection. That plate was there that same day when I was there, when I was two, you know? So, yeah. but I'm, I'm not, uh, um, I'm not a guy, you know, like you said, who, who kind of has, you know, documented my whole existence from day one, just, just to have that stuff. Um, yeah. because you're right. You, you could burn all kinds of time looking back when you really should be looking forward. Yeah. You know, it is like the analogy I use would be like, if you're a car company, and the new car company is looking through the windshield going forward. The old car company is driving in reverse, looking through their rearview mirror because they're only concerned about their heritage. They're they're handicapping themselves for the future, um, yeah. and they're not going to be able to drive as fast and as accurate because they're going backwards in their rearview mirror instead of using their whole windshield. So it, it's like that. And then I think also too, it's like it depends on your childhood. I had a childhood, so it's like I don't want any memorability to remind me of that. Car. Sure. You know what I'm saying? It's like, dude, you know, it's like (laughs) I spend my whole life trying to forget about all of these things. I don't want a reminder of whatever it is, you know, but you know, I I do get nostalgic and people send me some photos from back in the day or, you know, like my mom sent me some photos of when I was a kid and stuff. And it's like, dude, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Well, and to that point, I mean that, that picture, that little camping trip, like I was telling you a minute ago, Mm-hmm. To me, I still look at that as one of the greatest times of my life, and I wasn't even two. So I can totally yeah. see that if you had a crappy childhood, you don't want to be reminded of that. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, you know. And then, again, I think that's just kind of going on in my mind and then just feeling like, dude, not good enough, you know, or just broken, you know, broken and shameful, you know. Um, well, it's, what's a, amazing, it's a tough one. You, you're a guy who came from a uh, a pretty messed up background in a, a part of the world that had its challenges on the street, your own physical limitations with your eyes and all the rest of it, and yet you've been able to power through and, and be very, very successful and still remain positive and influential and, and inspirational to, to all the rest of us. You make guys like Mike and I that had, you know, normal childhoods and we didn't have disabilities <laughs> and we're going, what the hell did we do wrong here? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Miles. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you guys, I mean, you guys are doing amazing and everything. You're such icons in, in, in this industry and thank you for all your contributions and all your accomplishments. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to the nuclear reactor and I guarantee you, that if we really dig deep into both your childhoods, there's trauma, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's trauma in it and there's trauma at any age. And, you know, and that's, that's kind of what I feel like God put me here to do is say, look, let's expose that trauma. Let's get it out and put it on the table. So people could actually see it because I was more embarrassed or, you know, shameful of things and all that other stuff. But now I talk about it. Once I talk about it, it's like, dude, do I care what that person is going to say? No, because I talked about it. And that unlocks that demon within is just put it out there. And then when I started talking about things, people started grouping around going, hey, I feel the same way. 
Hey, that happened to me. Oh, that, oh yeah. The, oh my God. We're all the same. We're like each other. And then you group them all together. And it's like, guys, we're all screwed up, but we're together. And that's all that matters. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. And it's great. Cause you're right. If you, if you can talk about the stuff, you, uh, you kind of let the air out and you shine some light on things and then th mm -hmm. they don't seem to be so traumatizing or so scary anymore. No. And, and we're, you know, again, it's like, dude, um, I mean, going back, like I said, I was going, you know, literally crazy mentally. Um, and my life was excellent. I mean, I was locking down these big deals, flying out to all these fortune 50 companies and dude, it was like on fire. Um, but what I had to do was I had to right size my life. I came back, sold my big house, sold all 15 cars, just basically, just basically sold everything and kind of hit the reset button and started over. And I lost a lot of money in property. I lost money in cars, but to me, I didn't care because I knew it was going to keep me alive. Right. So you ever heard of the seven year itch? Yeah. yeah. Sure. So the seven year itch from what I heard was derived from the American Indians, the feather Indians. Hmm. And every seven years they would trade all of their belongings, including their wives. Oh, well, Why would they do that. that? That's enough for trivia. Why would they do that? Yeah. Right. Why would, Why would they do that? that? Um, to pick up some bad influences and they want to get rid of it and start fresh. It, it, that could be part of it, but that's not the main reason. Kevin? Uh, well, I'm trying to figure out why it's every seven years. Uh. I, I kind of think like Mike, you know, if you, if you can, uh, if you can dump, you know, everything you've got, um, like your wife every seven years, you're well, going to be happy. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't well, know. If my wife true. listens to the show and honey, <laughs> There's no way in the world I would ever want to do that. We all know that uh, that is not the case on my side either. And hopefully she wouldn't want to dump me every seven years because I'd be gone a couple of times already by now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just what is the reason if you if you know what this is? Yeah, so they, they don't want to have any emotional connection to a thing. They don't want to have any emotional connection to a thing because when you have emotional connections to things, that thing controls you. Yeah. They're not wrong about that. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of live by that now. So I basically, basically right size my life. People would say, Oh, you downsize, whatever. I make the same amount of money, maybe even more. And I live in a one bedroom house. I drive a, t a Ford pickup truck right now, a Ranger. I got a dirt bike. That's what makes me happy. I used to have Lambos, Ferraris and everything. And I, I realized that those things made me want to kill myself. Wow. Man. Well, and, and I can see that, you know, I, I had an experience, uh, when I was living in LA working for hot rod where the hot rod shop got broken into and a lot of stuff mm -hmm. got stolen and mm -hmm. I don't do well with loss. And mm -hmm. it took me a while after that, um, to be able to kind of connect with certain things because I had a fear yeah. that everything could be taken away at any second. Well, well, so, so the real question is this, is your fear of loss or is your fear of control? Because that sounds like a more of a control fear that's causing the the um, loss as part of that. It's like a, it's almost like a um, um, a symptom to the sickness, right? So it's a control thing that creates this loss as part of it as a symptom of the uh, control. Because I have the same thing, and that's one of my biggest things was 
I always felt like I was out of control, not in a, like I'm parting out of control, just like always, you know, like being held down or, you know, put in a, a box or this or that, and just really, you know, taking advantage of, or, you know, just really um, treated in a poor way. So that's all I saw myself as. And it was more of a control thing. It's just like when I say I was afraid to fly, I wasn't afraid to fly. I was afraid to die. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just really kind of dissecting that. Um, I do a lot of work on myself in that area with myself and I work with psychics and I work with um, therapists um, just to keep me open and focused. And it's a tough thing because I want to close up like you wouldn't believe. I want to put concrete walls around me every day to protect myself. But I realized that being vulnerable and sharing that vulnerability has been the key to my real success. Yeah. Well, and that's something that anybody who talks to you for, for more than a minute realizes that uh, you're not the guy who is all about me and, you know, you share your vulnerability willingly and your story and everything else. And it, and it, I think it really draws people to you. So I, I, I would agree with that statement. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Well, listen, man, um, we've already run a little bit long, but I, I, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, we had a really nice chat, uh, over in Saudi and I thought it'd be a nice time to, uh, to get together again. Cause I don't see you very often. I see it at SEMA and, you know, a couple of other events. Um, yeah. but, uh, I, I always appreciate your time. It's very valuable. I, and I, and I appreciate that. So, uh, so definitely thanks for joining us. And I know that, um, this might have been one of the few times, Mike, where the people probably want to hear more from our guests than our trivia questions. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but we promised, so it's uh, it's time to reveal the answers. And uh, Mikey, you went first, so. All right, right on. All right, so I, I painted a nice picture of you cruising down uh, on an open stretch of highway, wide open, uh, going 150 miles an hour. And I asked, what uh, was the speed rating your tire would need to be? to do that safely and miles and uh said z rating and kevin you concurred and congratulations boys that is absolutely right you need a z rated tire to go 149 plus miles an hour yeah we win nothing all right yeah so uh uh, miles you were up in in the second spot Mm -hmm. yeah so about the the windshield wipers right so you know was were they once illegal? And they were once illegal. In 1903, they put a patent on it and they put it on vehicles, but it was considered a driver's distraction. And then so they had a, it's kind of like, you know, loud mufflers or whatever it is right now, seatbelts and stuff. You know, they, they, they deemed it illegal, legal, not legal. And then they made it legal after. So it was actually a driver's distraction and deemed illegal uh, originally when it first came out. Yeah. And it's, right it's no different than a touchscreen, um, um, you know, uh, touchscreen in your vehicle that yep. was deemed illegal. And now it's starting to become, uh, uh, you know, legal. So it's, it's kind of weird. It's a similar type of thing. Yep. So I think, uh, I think I got that right. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Yes, you and did. Mike got half of it right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my question was pretty lame, but it was, uh, what is the earliest known mention of the term dub in film? Of course, a little nod to dub magazine. Um, <laughs> Miles said early 1900s, and uh, Mikey said uh, Y2K, possibly Fast and Furious. Well, congratulations, Mr. Miles Kovacs, because it was in the title of a silent comedy film called The Dub in 1919. Oh, my gosh. 
You, you know, it's funny because I was going to say 1920, but part of it too is because that's when the TV was invented around that same time. So it has to be about the same time. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, 1919, yeah. so you're a big winner there. Nicely done, yeah. sir. Nicely done. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so for people that are uh, um, interested to learn more about what you're doing, Miles, and, and follow mm-hmm. along, throw us some some social sites and some stuff where people yeah. can learn more. So it's Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, K-O-V-A-C-S. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and then, you know, dubmagazine.com, D-U-B-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E.com, T-I-S Wheels dot com and drop stars wheels d-r-o-p-s-t-a-r-s dot com awesome drop stars.com yeah one thing that i that i certainly love about this industry is you know we say it all the time old cars make new friends and and cars mm. cross all the cultural barriers it doesn't matter who you are a cool car cool truck is cool to everybody and mm. and there's such a cool glue there um in this this car culture that uh, it doesn't see color. It doesn't see anything. It just sees cool. So mm-hmm. uh, I invite people to, uh, to check things out that, you know, it, it might not be what you're into every day, but you can certainly appreciate it. And I know um, next weekend, as a matter of fact, I'm going to see a whole bunch of your products because I will be working at the uh, four wheel jamboree uh, up in Pennsylvania and Bloomsburg. And there's going to be a lot of TAS wheels and drop star stuff there too, for yeah, sure. So that's cool. That's good. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, right right well, be be careful with all the COVID stuff out there, and um, everybody out there, you know, just be careful. It's uh, it's very sad and uh, very tough what everybody's going through right now. It is, it is, and thank you for that reminder. Um, everybody, be careful. And uh, this was this was really great. Again, I, we really sincerely appreciate you taking the time, buddy. Anytime, I appreciate it, and um, you know, I, I appreciate. It. And then another thing I was going to say was, um, if people want to see more of my films or uh, my speaking. They could Google me and I did a TEDx talk that they could look at from back in the day that kind of breaks down kind of similar what we talked about. And there might be some nuggets in there that people people could pick up. So it's a TEDx talk. I've watched that and there's more than just nuggets. Hmm. I'll tell you <laughs> right you. now, there's great, great big chunks. So Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me too. It's oh, a yeah, true yeah, pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Miles. And uh, to everybody else listening, um, we invite you to subscribe. Uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google, Stitcher, the whole list. I don't know. There's a whole yeah, bunch of Spotify, them. Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio. Right. That's a good one. The whole shebang. The whole shebang. And, uh, or you go to the V8Radio.com website or find us on uh, Facebook and whatnot. And uh, we appreciate everybody tuning in and, and checking out the show. Click the subscribe button to... Uh, to you know never miss miss an episode never miss an episode but you never know who the guest is going to be and for those who subscribe they really got lucky this time (laughs) amen sure did so for uh mr miles kovacs and mike Hubal clark i'm kevin oosty reminding you to uh keep those 20 inch wheels and bigger rolling and we'll talk to you next time on v8 radio